0: Uh, Jesus we will not understand one thing unless you help us your truths the things in the Bible are too deep for us to naturally understand so I just ask that you'd help me to get out of the way of saying what you want to say and that you'd help us all myself included to understand what you want to communicate today amen excellent oh look don't you love stories See, this is an interesting thing. You know, life actually unfolds like a story, doesn't it? It doesn't unfold like maths, does it? You don't sit down and you You get up in the morning and there's a formula and it's just going to be a logistical, sorry, logical progression through the day. It actually unfolds like a story. Life's more like a drama. It has a beginning and an end. And don't people love it when the year comes to an end? I love it. It's just like me and I'm glad for that to be able because that was a... Some people say, don't they, at New Year's, they say, last year was a horror story for me. Because it was a story for them. You see, there's all sorts of characters in your life, isn't there? And there's all sorts of settings. Sometimes it's a tragedy, and sometimes it's a comedy. Anyone know about that? It is, isn't it? And sometimes, well, let's just be honest, mostly it's probably a bit like a soap opera. Isn't it? Sometimes it just drags on a bit. Imagine uh, if you're a parent, and and, and you get home, and the car's crashed. In the driveway, all right? And the last thing you remember doing is handing the keys to your uh, 17-year-old. What's the first thing you want to know? Well, you want to know what the story was, don't you? How did the car get like that? Tell me the story. Imagine you uh, walk in to a group in a uh, party or a get-together somewhere, and all you hear is this, um, that's not my dog. And you know that someone just told a, a joke, you just, it doesn't mean anything. It, why doesn't it mean anything? It doesn't mean anything because you didn't hear the story. Because that's what jokes are all about. That's what life is all about. It's about stories. And if you actually look at uh, Lord of the Rings in the, um, in the part, The Two Towers, Sam actually says to Frodo, he actually says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. This a really interesting thing. I wonder if you could ponder that today. I wonder when you think about your life, I wonder what sort of tale... You've actually fallen into. Is it an action movie that you've fallen into? Is it a romance? Is it a bad joke? Is it a, a movie where the good guys seem to lose or maybe where it doesn't pay to be good? You see, there's a whole um, side sort of just so that you know, I'm just waiting for my papers to come through and I've uh, got myself a qualification in counselling. And one of the uh, therapies, it's uh, gaining more and more momentum at the moment, is actually a kind of therapy called narrative therapy. And a narrative is just a, it's a story, isn't it? So the whole goal with narrative, as far, narrative therapy, as far as I can make out, is you go in and you talk to the therapist and you tell the therapist your story. Excellent. You tell them your story, right? Now, obviously, there's going to be parts in your story that aren't very nice parts. And so part of what the, the uh, therapist's job in narrative therapy is to help you to rewrite those parts of your life that aren't very good and help you to see them a different way. We'll get back to that later. What I do want to show you is I'm going to show you a few clips today. I'm not sure whether any of you have seen the movie Unbreakable, but I'll just roll this. This is uh, the very first scene of a movie and then uh, make a few comments. You see, the narrative therapist would want to tell you that the, uh, the little parts of your life that aren't quite right are things that you can re- rewrite, but you know what, I actually think that most of us instinctively know that there's a sense in which there's stuff inside of us that's actually broken. And we're like that kid who was actually born broken. And we like to act and live sometimes like it's not the case, but we all know that there's moments, there's quiet moments in our lives where we're sitting on our own, where we all know that there's something that's deeply wrong with us. Something that heads in the wrong direction, something that causes us grief and causes us pain often. See, what the narrative uh, therapists, I think, are actually getting wrong is the narrative therapists are saying, I can rewrite part of my story. But I want to suggest to you this morning this. Your story will only make sense if you understand what the mega story is that's going on. That's how you understand what your story is like. The narrative therapists are saying you can interpret your story however you want. And I would suggest to you that you probably can't. I would say that you need to look at your story in the light of the mega story, and then that helps you to interpret it and to uh, to know where you're going. Let me introduce this uh, mega story to you. I want to ask you this question today: Are people victims or perpetrators of their brokenness? The Bible is very clear that people are born broken. People are born a little bit twisted. Have you been following uh, Amy Winehouse's uh, demise? It's very sad. It's actually really, really sad to uh, to read some of her bio, and I thought I'd put a little bit of it up for you today. October 20, 2003, Winehouse releases her debut album, Frank. March 13, 2007, she releases her second album. May 18, she marries uh, Blake Field the Civil in Miami. That's an interesting last name, isn't it? Civil. I hope he stayed that way. Uh, Winehouse's father-in-law tells the radio station that fans should stop buying her records to force her to seek help for a drug addiction. And as you keep going down and down and down, it's just this sad progression of Amy Winehouse. And it just looks like Amy Winehouse is broken. And there's a sense in which she's a perpetrator of her brokenness because, but she's also a victim of it, isn't it? And that's the kind of sense that you get as you read her story. So the answer to our question up the top, are people victims or perpetrators of their brokenness, is yes. Because it's both, isn't it? There's a sense in which it traps people. Have a look down here. April 27, 2010, Winehouse is treated for bruised ribs after falling in her North London home. The singer goes back into rehab. She's jeered and booed while on stage in Belgrade, Serbia after stumbling and forgetting lyrics to her songs. And then July 23, Winehouse is found dead at age 27. It's just sad to read. And she's not the only one who's like that. She just happens to be a famous person that everyone gets to see as she goes down, in a sense, in her brokenness. Fascinating tweet down the, uh, down the bottom left-hand corner of the page here uh, by Lily Allen, um, which was written on Twitter. It's just beyond sad. There's nothing else to say. She was such a lost soul. May she rest in peace. And isn't there something, I mean there's certainly something in me and I'm sure there's something in all of us, when you read things like that, there's probably a side to you that might be going, well, she got herself into it and she deserved it. But isn't there a part of you when you hear someone say she was such a lost soul, isn't there just that tug in your heart where you just go, geez, I wish she could have been rescued. I wish someone could have got to her. I wish somehow she could have been saved instead of ending up in that place. I want to talk just a little bit bit about the nature of our brokenness because I actually think that the grand narrative that's actually over all of history is this sense that we actually want to be rescued. When when I get into trouble, someone might be able to come and rescue me. But why do we actually need to be rescued? We need to be rescued because we're actually busted and broken inside. What is the nature of our brokenness? Well, Russell Brand came out and said in an article about uh, Amy Winehouse, he said this, a former drug addict wrote a lengthy tribute in which he urged the media and public to change the way addiction is perceived, not as a crime or romantic affection, sorry, affectation, but as a disease that will kill. Winehouse and I shared an affliction, a, the disease of addiction, he wrote. Addiction is a serious disease. It will end with jail, mental institutions or death. And this is one area I think in our society where we need to be really, really careful and I'll tell you why. When people first started talking about addictions being like a disease, they used it metaphorically. And if you'll note now, people don't use addictions being like a disease. They say addictions are a disease. So they've actually jumped the gap. This is actually what everyone used to say, addictions were like it, but now everyone's saying addictions are. And that's a really important transition. You see, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, part of uh, their whole plan for getting people off alcohol involves this. And I quote, Alcoholism is largely a spiritual disease requiring a spiritual healing. This is what AA say. And if you actually go and talk to addicts, addicts will tell you that the pressure and the bondage that that they feel under the addiction influences them but doesn't ultimately 100% control them. It exercises quite a significant influence, but it doesn't control them. So addiction actually isn't a disease in a sense. It's not an unavoidable destiny that someone would end up in a particular place. It's not an ultimate thing. There are some times in the Bible where the Bible does talk about addiction being like a disease. But the Bible never ever says that people are out of control because of the disease of addiction. And this is probably a really good example of it out of Isaiah 44, verse 20. They, idolaters, people who worship other gods, know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they can't understand. And this is in a sense true of addicts, isn't it? People who are stuck in a cycle of things. They look like that. Their eyes are covered over. But check this out. They're the ones feeding. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. So when you look at a true biblical approach to what an addiction is, sometimes the Bible says that it's a little bit like a disease, but it's not an ultimate controlling thing. People have the opportunity and the ability to actually get out of their addictions. Romans 5 verse 10, the nature of our brokenness is not that we're broken victims that are being controlled by something else, but Romans 5 10 actually says you're God's enemy before you come to faith in him. That's a bit hard to believe. You're God's enemy. There's actually a parable, which I was looking at last night in uh, Luke, I think it was roughly Luke 14, somewhere there, where the, the tenants in the vineyard were in the vineyard and they're looking after it, looking after it. And every time the uh, the owner of the vineyard sent someone to collect the rent, the tenants would go, oh, let's beat them up, which is a really cool thing to do to your landlord's servants. So you, you beat the living daylights out of them and you send them back. And then the uh, landlord ends up sending his, he says, well, I'm going to send my my son and maybe they will respect him. Now the son comes along and they all kind of go, cool, this is our chance to get the vineyard because all we need to do is kill the son and then he'll let us have the vineyard. (laughs) Stupid idea, all right? But that's what happens. And there's a sense in which between us and God prior to us uh, having our heart changed and coming to love Jesus, there's a sense in which we're enemies because that's actually what pride does. Pride wants us to be God, and if it means that God's in the way, then somehow we're going to need to get rid of him. It actually means we're treasonous. I was sitting in the High Court uh, on our Year 12 Canberra trip uh, quite a few years ago, and one of the things they said I'd never heard before, they said the death penalty is still current in Australia, but it's only current for treason. It's the only way you could be put to death by the death penalty. Now, probably Australia would never do that now. But we need to realise that our brokenness and our, our fallenness is not a victim kind of mentality where we're stuck in this thing, but it's actually an attacking mentality a lot of the time as well. It's like uh, It would be like Australia going and fighting in Afghanistan and one of us here deciding we wanted to go and fight for the Taliban and killing Australian soldiers. That's the kind of brokenness we have. It's not a passive brokenness. It's an active brokenness. My dad's always used to say this saying. My dad I said dad's then, I've only got one. But my dad always used to say this one. He said, people don't break God's law. They just break themselves against God's law. And often that's the case. People get broken and they get messed up. And yes, there is a little bit of a victim kind of thing about it, a bit like uh, Isaiah 44 was saying, but it's not ultimate. Ultimately, it's us breaking ourselves against God's law. It'd be like all of us, I mean, we could do this, couldn't we? We could have like a sermon illustration where we get on a ladder and climb up on top of the roof. And we're all going, we're all today going to break the law of gravity. Well, you don't break the law of gravity, do you? You break yourself against it because it doesn't change. And we'll all end up on the ground out there and hopefully someone will have a mobile and we'll call the hospital and we should be right, eventually maybe. But that's the way God's law works. You don't actually break it. You don't smash it. You get broken against it. See, the human story is a story of something that started beautiful, something where all of us originally, if we were born into the Garden of Eden, would have been absolutely beautiful. But the human story tells a story of people slowly and gradually being defaced, their beauty getting mangled it's like a leper, isn't it? Look at that picture of a leper there. Look at that and you think about your soul. You think the human story is actually one where your soul is slowly becoming more deformed, slowly mangling ourselves, slowly moving ourselves further and further into helplessness. That's what it is. And that's the nature of breaking ourselves against God's law. That's the nature of our brokenness is while we continue in our brokenness, we're like the the leper that keeps bashing his hand on things and putting his hand on hot plates and having his foot in a fire and losing parts of his body until in a sense he's just a stump that's left or she's just a stump that's left and they have to be carried somewhere. There's a sense of that in the Bible is that as you move further and further away from what God's plan was, you become more and more helpless and more and more a victim. But the Bible never ever says that you're... Not responsible. The Bible would say, you got yourself there. You got yourself to that place where you're a stump on the ground. Isaiah 1, 5 to 7 says this, Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. This is a humbling thing for us. I uh, actually posted a tweet a few days ago, and uh, my wife said to me, That's a bit of a weird one to put on Twitter. But you know what it was? It was a scripture out of the Psalms where it says, I was like a beast before you, yet you were still with me. And sometimes we can just, our hearts can be bad, can't they? They can be really broken, they can be really twisted. And God's kind of saying, God would say to all of us today, whether you love Jesus or not, he would say, your problem is that your whole body is affected. Your whole soul is affected. Everything about you is affected by brokenness and sickness. There's no soundness in any of us, is there? In the flesh, in our natural person, there's no soundness in us. It's pretty bad news. I'm going to show you another clip. This is a little bit further on in the movie uh, Unbreakable. What's happened is uh, it's Samuel L. Jackson and uh, Bruce Willis. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson is the, is the baby that was born and he was born broken and he's actually got a, a, a bone disease which causes his bones to break all the time. Bruce Willis, on the other hand, um, Samuel L. Jackson has noticed that Bruce Willis has been in some major catastrophes and actually come through unscathed. And uh, so what he's done is he's actually put a, a card underneath... Uh, uh, Bruce Willis's uh, car's windscreen wiper and he's invited him to come and meet him at his cartoon studio, at his comic studio. Uh, this is the exchange that, that ensues from that. <coughs> Interesting, isn't it? And if you look at our, our, uh, the, the movies that are coming out, you've got the Greenland, Captain America. I don't know, is there going to be Captain Australia? Probably not. We've got enough national pride to have a captain of Australia, I don't think so. Has anyone seen it? Is it out? I think it's out. Massive numbers of superhero movies. If you notice that, the last five or six years, there's lots and lots of superhero movies. And I think uh, this clip actually, in my view, explains some of that. Because I think that there's a desire inside of people that there would be someone or there'd be something that would be able to come and rescue me when I get in trouble. And in fact, in talking to uh, Diff about this, he was talking talking to me about, uh, I think it was Greek, uh, Greek plays and uh, creative arts and that sort of stuff. He said there's always this notion of redemption that comes out in story. And that's what they taught them. Uh, That's how they taught them to structure their their stories. And when you look at almost every single movie, you see that, don't you? Even if it's not a superhero movie, you still see this sense of redemption. There's this character that, that somehow... Through it changes and gets saved. Who wants to watch a story that's not like that? We went to a unit on uh, the sunny coast in the recent holidays, and there's a movie I've been wanting to watch for a long, long time. And the people before us, I think, just left the DVD in the DVD recorder, which I'm going, really cool. Anyone seen Napoleon Dynamite? Yeah, like I only got to see half of it, but like, there's no, there's no point to it, is there? Isn't that right? People. Isn't that true? If you've seen it, like there's pretty much no point to it. And There's nothing redemptive about it. And the bottom line is that movie actually probably succeeded to a large degree because it's totally different every other movie. But if every movie was like that, you wouldn't go. You have to see the movie to find out. It's about this nerdy, geeky, tall guy with glasses who can't get a girlfriend, basically. And that's the whole movie. And I don't even think he gets a girlfriend at the end, does he? Who's seen it? Does he get one? He does. Hey, right. There you go. Maybe there's some redemption, if you want to call it that. But it's in every story, isn't it? This whole notion of redemption, this notion that someone in a bad place can be saved. If uh, this is a classic quote by Homer Simpson, love to quote him in sermons. Uh, I'm not only a praying man, but if you're out there, please save me, Superman. The uh, the movie Superman Returns was probably one of the most barefaced um, promotions of this whole notion of people wanting to be actually saved and be rescued from uh, being in trouble. This guy, uh, Darby Wilson, has actually done a fair bit of research on Superman. Check this stuff out about Superman. And just in case you didn't know, Superman was the first superhero. Every other superhero came on the back of Superman. Uh, He was created in 1930 and the creators were Jewish. Superman actually resembles Moses. If you look closely at Superman, he actually... uh, Resembles Moses very much. His uh, original Kryptonian name, see, you'd be able to go home people go, what did you learn at church? I learned about Superman's Kryptonian name, right? It's very similar to the Hebrew name Kol El, meaning the voice of God. Isn't that interesting? And then at the end here, uh, there's just a little uh, quote here about what happens in Superman Returns. The same resurrection story appears in the 2006 movie Superman Returns when the man of steel exerts his energy hurling an island into outer space as you do on your weekends and then falls to earth, his body landing in the shape of a cross. After this he goes into a coma and there are three distinct scenes of him in the hospital before disappearing to once again fight crime. You see Superman uh, originally just like Moses was sent away from danger as a child in a capsule and then later adopted by foreign alien parents. Moses was sent away to avoid infanticide, whereas Superman was sent away because his home planet Krypton was about to explode. Isn't this interesting? You've got a very clear parallel actually going on between that and what you would actually see in the Bible. And I think it actually keys in very, very closely to our heart's desire, deep, deep down. I'm going to show you a clip in a minute. will show you this right now. This is a clip... Uh, One of the nasty things about superhero movies lately is that they've been pretty keen to bring out the human side. So there's—have you noticed that? Like in the Batman, was it? What what was the Batman run with Heath Ledger in it? It was, yeah, The Dark Knight. That's right. It was very clear in The Dark Knight that they were actually bringing out the human side and the temptations of Batman. You see a little bit of this because there's a little bit of—you know—what the heck happened between Lois Lane and Superman? There's something weird going on there. Uh, in Superman Returns, but check this out. He's just been eavesdropping, which is unethical, just in case you don't know, but if you're Superman, I guess you can do whatever you want. Um, and then he flies up to the, in, into the air. And Anyway, check this out. This is good. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you've got the father saying things like, I've sent my only son. Uh, these people can be a great people. They just lack the light to show them the way. And then it ends with Superman up there with his supersonic hearing, as all parents have got in their house, you supersonic hearing, you can hear things. But not quite as good as Superman, so he's up there and what's he hearing? Well, he's hearing the cries and the sounds of people in trouble, people who need to be rescued. Uh, further to this, uh, in Superman uh, Returns, Superman's actually absent from uh, the world for a little bit and it actually drives Lois Lane to write a book called Why the World Doesn't Need Superman. To refute this point, Superman takes Lois high above the earth to where he watches and listens over all of humanity. He says to her, You wrote that the world doesn't need a saviour, but every day I hear people crying out for one. And isn't that the heart's cry? As good as our lives are, aren't there times where the heart cries for a saviour and for a rescuer that would come and help me? So I'm suggesting to you today that this thought that there might be someone who's not like me, who's not actually bound by the same constraints that I'm bound by, who when I get in trouble will be able to come and rescue me and to save me. I'm I'm suggesting to you that that's part of our fabric. And I want to suggest to you the reason why it's part of our fabric as people is because I think it's part of the narrative, the grand narrative that's been happening over, over the whole of history. It's actually the grand metaphor behind all the others. You see, if you, look, if you go right to the start of the Bible, to uh, Genesis chapter 3, you've got chapter 1 and 2 are all about the creation of the world. And then chapter 3, it all goes wrong because we don't do what we're asked to do. Fascinating stuff that you actually see right at the very beginning that God's rescue has started. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. God's talking to the serpent, to the devil. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which is why, if you actually watch the movie The Passion of the Christ, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the snake comes out. You know that scene? It comes out and it starts wrapping around. What does Jesus do to the snake? Isn't it? Isn't that amazing? The first act that makes everything go all wrong, there's the first expression of God's plan to rescue people. I think it's it's amazing. God's going, I'm going to get that guy. He messed it all up. You guys messed it up. He messed it up. A lot of you messed it up. But I'm going to get him, and I'm coming for you. This is kind of like the story of every movie, and the reason why I think it's in every movie is because God wrote it into the fabric of history. Is that he's coming for you? I remember sitting in Sydney, I lived in a whole bunch of places in Sydney, but I remember sitting in, in uh, Seven Hills, and that was pretty close to the western suburbs when I was down there, and some rugged gear used to go on. Like I remember hanging the washing out, and I heard gunshots, and another night a police chopper comes over the spotlight, they're looking for someone. Then another night there was this great big bang. And you know, inside of me, instinctively there was just, and it wasn't because life was terrible for me, but instinctively inside of me, I've just gone, he's coming back to get me. Because don't we love that? Someone's coming to get me. Someone loves me. Someone's coming to rescue me. And I thought, man, maybe Jesus is coming back now to get me. And what does God do in Genesis 3:24? This is something maybe that you don't expect. God drives out the man and the woman, And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which is an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in the the Garden of Eden, you've got the tree of life and you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one they weren't allowed to eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of life, hook in. If you actually look in Revelation, what it actually says in Revelation is that there's trees of life that are going to be in heaven. So the tree of life to deal with that is it actually helps you to live forever. That gives you eternity in a sense. That's the symbolic thing. The interesting thing is that God stops His people, Adam and Eve, from going into the garden. Why? Because they'd done something that broke the connection between them and He, and He didn't want them to live forever in that state. So what does He do? He puts an angel with a sword, and I'm going to freak the living daylights out of you if you come near me. Why does He do that? Because one day He's going to send someone who's going to stomp on the head of the snake, and he'll be able to be reconnected to his kids again. This is cool. And we actually see this in Jesus. Check this out. This is from Luke 15. This is a bit like a story, the way that Luke uh, leads into this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats for them. I love this. I was, I was thinking about this last night, and I thought it's almost like you're watching a movie and the tension's increasing. All right? You've got lots of bad people coming to hang out with Jesus, the broken ones, from their own fault, but they're also a bit trapped as well. You've got the bad guys over here and unfortunately, we've got the church guys over here. And the church guys are getting unhappy about it. They're just going, this is uncool. If this guy's meant to be who he is, why is he hanging out with all the people that are busted and broken and are a mess? It's like he's going to get dirty and soiled by being with them. And, and it's almost like there's just going to be a UFC fight going on in a minute, you know, between the church guys and the, and the bad guys. But what happens? Jesus doesn't, you just seem to know Jesus doesn't always keep the peace, does he? Here's what he says. He told them this parable. What does he do? He tells them a story. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until when? This is the interesting thing. If someone gets lost at sea, well, how long do we give them? We send the choppers out, we send the, the boats out, what, for a week? Six days? Seven days? what does jesus say about this shepherd no this shepherd if this shepherd loses a sheep goes out until when until he finds it goes out until he finds it so it's not like i'm giving this 30 seconds you know when you lose something at home and it's not that important to you you just kind of go ah you know forget it i'll give it 30 seconds if i can't find it by then i'm going to buy another one Because the the way that you search, the way that you look is reflective of how you value. The shepherd here leaves his 99 in a safe place and he goes out and he keeps going and keeps looking and keeps walking, keeps going up hills, keeps going down hills until he finds his lost sheep. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing and when he comes home he calls together his friends and his neighbours saying to them, Rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. Most of us would probably think, you know, if you had to search seven days for a sheep, by then you would have found a pretty big stick. You know what I'm saying? I was going to hit that thing, <laughs> all right? I'm really irritated, I'm hungry, I've got prickles in my boots, uh, I'm really thirsty, I haven't had a good drink for a while, I've got sunstroke. Man, is that sheep going to get it when I find it? But no, not this shepherd, this shepherd's going, this is cool. I've found the sheep that I've been looking for. What does he do? Slings it up on his shoulder, and gets home and he says, Come on, everyone, come in. We're going to have a party because I found my lost sheep. doesn't say you beat it. One of my kids' uh, storybooks, Bible storybooks, talks about this exact story. And uh, one of the questions he'd ask to the boys uh, when we read it, and they have to answer it, is uh, what's the shepherd going to do when uh, he finds his sheep? Is he going to beat it up, tie it up, and drag it home along the ground? Why does the boys go, no, no, he's not, because he's a good shepherd, isn't he? This is the grand metaphor, isn't it? This is the grand narrative, isn't it? That God's on a rescue mission. He started in Genesis, and then you have this progression through the Old Testament of uh, points and phases, I guess. I can't think of the right way to express it, but this progression along the Old Testament and the New Testament where God's on this rescue plan, this rescue mission. It's interesting, If a really good study to do through the Bible is uh, the, st- the study of the lamb. The concept of a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, actually shows up most of the way through the Bible and thereby most of the way through history. It's interesting, uh, I read in a uh, Bible dictionary a little while ago, when they would have Passover, it wouldn't be uncommon for 250,000 animals to be slaughtered during Passover. That is amazing, isn't it? That's a lot of animals. That's messy. And doesn't that in a sense suggest that the way that people get rescued is going to be messy? It's not going to be easy and nice and neat, but it's actually going to be messy. But this is the way Jesus thinks, isn't it? He thinks like this shepherd in the story. He thinks, I'm going to keep going until I find the sheep that's lost. I'm going to show you a quick clip here from the movie The Guardian. I'm not sure who's seen it. This is a great clip. Uh, Kevin Costner plays a, uh, a very experienced rescue swimmer for the US Coast Guard. And uh, he had a bit of a fright, or he had a bit of an issue in one of his rescues that he did. And these are the guys that go out in the choppers when the storm's blowing and the waves are big and people are dying in the ocean, they go out to rescue them. And he had a bit of an issue with one of his rescue missions, so he got pulled off um, rescuing people and he got put in the training Section So he got to the point where he's training people. And Kevin was a very, very experienced, very gifted, and the most successful rescue swimmer that the uh, organisation had had. Um, And he trains up a guy called Ashton Kutcher. And this is close to, um, that's the actor's name, this is close to the end of the movie uh, where they're they're just talking. And uh, Kevin Costner had had another fright he it, it decided to go back out to be a rescue swimmer and he had another thing kind of not go right for him and so he's thrown the towel and he said, I just can't do this anymore. So he's, he's back at the base and he's packing his gear up and uh, the big thing for rescue swimmers is they all want to know how many people you saved and uh, Kevin Costner has never ever told him how many he saved and this is a little little interchange toward the end. Don't you get that sense from uh, Luke 15, the story, the parable of the lost sheep? That, that would be how Jesus would think. How many people did you get? And he goes, well, it's actually the ones that get lost that are the most important ones. So what do we need rescuing from? You know, one thing that we need rescuing from is every single one of us need to be rescued from justice. When uh, one of my boys was young, I was very, very clear. My eldest boy, actually, Geordie, I was actually really clear with teaching him some biblical concepts. So uh, one of the things I taught him was, what's grace? And uh, he would say to me, and I would ask him on maybe hundreds of occasions, I would just test him. I'd just go, what's grace? And he'd go, it's getting something good that I don't deserve. And uh, another word I actually taught him was uh, mercy, because I think sometimes uh, children in families, when they... You know, sometimes kids come home and they're just crying and they just can't control themselves and they've done stuff that they shouldn't do. What do they need? Well, they actually need mercy, don't they? And I wanted to teach my boys what mercy was because they needed to know what mercy was from God's perspective. But sometimes they needed to appeal t- to me for mercy because they were in a place where they just needed someone to be merciful. So I'd say to them, what's mercy? And he would answer, getting out of trouble. Someone getting me out of trouble. It's going, excellent. So you understand grace, you understand mercy. So one day we're having this rumble. Four boys, so we have rumbles, all right, all the time. And usually it ends when someone's crying because that's how it works with four boys, all right. It just keeps, you know, the, the intensity of it just keeps going up and up until someone's, you know, in an ambulance on the way to the hospital, you know. That's kind of how it is. Now, this day, I just thought, right, I, I pulled this move on him, you know. I mean, he would have been three at the time, right. So you don't have to pull much of a move. But pull this move on him, and I go, i got you, right? Now, he turned around to me, and he grabbed me, and he goes, and I've got you, right? We've got ourselves a stalemate. At least he thinks so anyway. He's like this high. And uh, I said, I said, Geordie, I want to introduce you to something. I said, do you know what a truce is? He goes, no, I don't. I said, I'll tell you what a truce is. You know what a truce is? A truce is when two people have got each other in trouble, and they give each other mercy. He goes, oh, okay. And I asked him this question. I said, Geordie? do you think we ever need to make a truce with God? You know what he said? He goes, no, we don't. I said, why not? He goes, because he's not in trouble. We're the ones that are the only ones that are in trouble and we need to get mercy from him. Interesting, isn't it? He did well. But isn't this the truth? And we see this in Amos 3. God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, talking about the Israelites. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You know, the first, most significant place of rescue that we need to realize that we need to be in is that we need rescuing from God. The devil is not the one that hands out discipline and judgment on people for the stuff that they've done wrong. God's the just, perfect God, and he will hand out discipline and judgment upon all of us for the stuff that we've done. So... That's kind of a weird thing because you think, if I need to be rescued, it means there's an enemy out there and there is an enemy out there and the devil does want to mess with some things. But you know what? Ultimately, most importantly, we need rescuing from God. You know, sometimes people need rescuing from consequences, don't they? Sometimes people can do things and it's just like, God, can you please help me? You know, sometimes God is very, very... Happy to rescue people from the consequences of the dumb things that they've done. You know, sometimes he doesn't do anything, does he? In terms of rescuing you from the consequences, because there's something he wants to teach you through it. And this is a tricky thing about God being a rescuer and coming to rescue us, is it's not always in the way that we expect him to, is it? He determines what's going to be best. Sometimes people need rescuing from temptation. When you're really, really tempted to do something really, really stupid, you can call out to God and say, God, please come and rescue me. Sometimes people need rescuing from their enemies and from other people's actions. You see this at the school here, sometimes with students that I talk to, you, you talk to me and you just go, oh man, like this student really needs to be rescued. And in some sense, that's what the... Uh, the child protection departments are about, aren't they? I mean, there's lots of people complain about how they don't get things right, but isn't that what they are? They're kind of a rescue agency for people who are getting harmed and getting hurt. And sometimes we really desperately need God to rescue us. Sometimes people can be locked up in a cell of grief for years, can't they? And they desperately need God to rescue them and they can be in that kind of bondage to it. And all of these things are almost... It's like I was saying earlier about our brokenness. It's like there there are things that we do, but there's a sense that there's a little bit of victim kind of component to it as well. Some people got real health issues that get on top of them. And God, please come and help me. And you know, sometimes God will heal people. Sometimes he won't, straight away. That would be the position of us at the project here is we actually think God wants to heal everyone. But the issue is an issue of timing. Does he want to do it now? Ultimately, every single one of us who love Jesus will be resurrected and you'll get a body where there's nothing wrong. And he will bring total and complete healing. It may not be near. Imagine being in a world where there was no rescue from any of these things. How hopeless would that be? So the Bible says that uh, one day... God's going to come back and he's going to judge people. And one of the really sad things about the day that Jesus comes back and brings judgment on, pe- on people is there won't be any rescue from justice on that day. And that's one of the really unique things all of us have uh, right now in this present age is that we get to tell other people about Jesus, that he is a rescuer, that he wants to come and rescue them. He wants to take on their sin. He wants to take on their brokenness and their lostness. A couple of things about the grand narrative and uh, the project out here. God's story is about his own glory. What about, this is a great, this would be a good scripture to memorize. Psalm fifty fifteen. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Remember we talked about that last week? Everything is about the glory of God. Well, how does God get rescued in your being saved? Is you call out to Him and you say, I need delivering. And then He does it. And then you go, you're a champ. I mean, that's the best for everyone, isn't it? Isn't that the best? You get saved and He gets glorified. What a great plan. Which is why, whenever you're in trouble and you need rescuing, you ought to ask to get rescued. Now, the reason why I'm doing this is because isn't that what kids do? When they're in trouble, when they've been hurt, they put their hands up and say, pick me up, kind of rescue me. Don't they do that? Spiritually, within your heart, in your soul, put your hands up. See that you're a little kid inside. Now, don't want to say it on the outside because everyone's going, oh, that's weird. What's he got his hands up for? You know, he's just at the traffic lights. All right? On the side, waiting to cross over, you know. And oh, that's, yeah, interesting. Okay, but inside, you could just go, oh... God, please rescue me. And there's a humility about being like a child and knowing that you're messed up and you're broken and you're not going to be able to get it done on your own. The whole of history, you can go through the whole Bible, the whole of the Bible is about Jesus. It's about the revelation of Jesus. It's about the Father's love. It's about God the Father. It's about the Holy Spirit. But if you look at the story of the Bible, it's all about the Revelation of Jesus and the plan that God's got to come and rescue us all piece by piece. And you see stuff in Isaiah 53, uh, which everyone knows is uh, foretold well in advance of Jesus coming. And we'll look at a scripture just in closing. The plan was designed, and this might trip you out theologically, but you just got to somehow just take it. God says he had the plan to come and rescue us before the foundation of the world. And it's all about Jesus. And here at the project, we're going to be all about Jesus. And that was uh, the scripture that was read earlier by Diff. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And the Jews would have uh, thought, as far as I understand, probably the only book in the Old Testament that would have been written prior to the books of Moses, which are the first five, uh, may have been the book of Job. Okay? The rest... Um, of the books of the Old Testament came after Moses. So Jesus says, right from the start, right through to now, everything has been revealing me. What about this? It's a bit of a tongue twister. The unbreakable one's brokenness heals the brokenness of the broken ones. Isaiah three five. But he was pierced for our rebellion, he was crushed for our sins, he was beaten so we could be whole, he was whipped so we could be healed. Isn't that just an amazing combination of concepts and ideas is that it's actually the one who, if he stayed in heaven, if he stayed separate from humanity, he would never have been broken. No one could ever break him. But Yet he comes and he takes on human flesh. And what do they do? They beat him up. They whip him. They beat him up. And the best explanation, the critics of... uh, Christianity can come up with is that Jesus upset the, upset the church leaders so they decided to whip him and kill him on a cross. You're just going, yeah, nice, you know, nice effort. Like people would do that to someone back then. You, know? you just irritate someone. Right, oh champ, we're going to flog her and then we're going to kill you. It's just not enough. It's not enough to get people that stirred up that they actually want to put someone to death. Jesus claimed to be God and he claimed to be the saviour and the rescuer for people which is why he hung out with the broken people and the lost people, which is why, as it's depicted in the Passion of the Christ here, which is why Jesus gets flogged and gets killed on the cross. Put these up, read a quote, and we're done. God's been on mission since before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? It means that You don't want to be too central about your role in all of it. We we just need to play a part that God's calling us to play in mission. People need to hear about Jesus. People need anyone who partners with the project here to tell them about Jesus, to tell them that he's the rescuer, that he's the one that comes to save them. But it's not like we're the first ones that have had the idea. It's not like 2,000 years ago... uh, The early church were the first ones that had the idea. God had the idea from the beginning. So there's a guarantee that it's actually going to work. The all-powerful one, the almighty one, the all-knowing one started this plan from the get-go. And so we just become part of it. We join in with him and he brings about the rescue that he wants to bring about in the people around us. There's no chance of defeat. And the last point there is that God mainly performs his rescue through people, doesn't he? and you see that in that scripture in Romans, Romans chapter 10 basically no one is ever going to hear about Jesus unless people tell them closing quote then I'm praying oh actually that's a pretty good point too that I wanted to throw in God's rescue plan will actually happen with or without the project we're just part of God's plan we don't think we're this massive kind of deal that's you know finally God's found the, the channel through which all the savings to happen all right We're just part of it. He's just called us into it, offering uh, for you guys to come and join us in it. It's way bigger than us. And you know he's going to get it done. He'll rescue people, with or without us. This overarching narrative or story reflects the fact that our problem as human beings is deeper than the individual sins we commit each day, creating the specific problems that complicate our lives. Our deepest problem is that we seek to find our identity outside the story of redemption. If the entire goal and direction of our lives are wrong, we need much more than practical advice on how to do the right thing in a particular situation. We need a message big enough to overcome our natural human instinct to live for our own glory, pursue our own happiness and forget that our lives are much, much bigger than this little moment of life. Every day, in some way, we buy the lies of autonomy and self-sufficiency, worshipping the creation rather than its creator this is paul tripp talking about the grand narrative i'm just going to pray that's going to lead us into uh, next week is the real problem with human beings is not that they do individual sins but they choose to actually worship other gods and uh, paul tripp is kind of saying that he's saying we live we're trying to live in a different narrative to the one that god's actually got going the whole way through history why don't you pray with me Jesus, we are stellar performers at making up our own narrative, making up our own stories and ignoring the big story that you've got going on. I thank you, Lord, so much that the big story, the grand narrative, the grand metaphor that you've got going on is that you're coming to rescue people. You want to rescue people. You came in Jesus to rescue people and the rescue mission is not over yet. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be humble like little kids and to be simple like little kids and just stick our hands up in the air and ask you to rescue us. Not just from justice, Lord, but I pray that you'd help us to be like that psalm, that when you're in trouble, you will call to me and I'll come and rescue you and then you'll glorify me. I pray, Lord, that you'd make us more dependent upon you and less dependent upon ourselves. And Lord, I pray that uh, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you and hasn't known your rescue, Lord, I just do pray today that you'd help them to understand it in their heart, not just in their head, Lord, but help them to understand it in their heart that you've come and you came to rescue them and to walk with them.